Good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. I'd encourage you to get your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 12. Lord willing, we're going to finish Exodus 12, uh, the entire account of the Passover and the death of the firstborn. And finally, the people of Israel are driven out of Egypt. Uh, This is in some ways sort of the uh, climax that we've been looking at for a long, long time. We've been in an Exodus for a long time. I think I began at roughly the beginning of this year, 2023. And from the very beginning, The people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt, but now finally they're freed and they're going to head toward the Red Sea. But if you know how the story pans out, you know what takes place at the Red Sea and whatnot. We'll get to that, Lord willing, eventually. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll dive into Exodus 12. Pray with me. Great God in heaven, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you for your covenant promises and for the way that you invincibly keep your promises. We thank you for the way that that's on display in the book of Exodus and for the way that You are to us today the very same God, the same promise-keeping, trustworthy God. Help us, Lord, to believe that and to walk by faith, not by sight. We do thank you for your son Jesus, for the way that he is the fulfillment of all of your promises, and for the way that he came to be the Savior of the world. Lord, please bless now our time studying your word. Give us illumination, conviction, repentance, faith, transformation. Help me, Lord, to make comments that helpfully bring out the meaning and the intent of this passage. And as always, we pray for grace that we would be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, let's pick up in Exodus 12, verse 33. Uh, Like I've been doing, I'm going to read a few verses, maybe a verse, uh, and make a few comments on it, and we'll see how far we get. Exodus 12, 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. Now pause there. That is not hyperbole at all. You know, sometimes we use hyperbole and say, like, I could eat a horse or something like that. Uh, This is not that. They literally think that if we don't get these folks out of here immediately, we are all going to be dead. And just think back to all that's taken place in Egypt. Like I've mentioned before, we think that the plagues could have covered a period of about two years. Maybe more, maybe less, but roughly two years. You know, plagues of the Nile turned into blood, the, the flies and the gnats and the locusts and, the, and you know, the hail, and, and now the death of the firstborn. Uh, they've killed Pharaoh's son, the next Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, so they're concerned that we might all be dead if we don't get these crazy Hebrews out of here as soon as possible. Uh, I can understand why they would feel that way. Uh, you, you and I would probably be feeling that way if we were in their shoes. And you'll notice they basically said, get out of here as fast as you can. And this is so different from what we've seen previous to this. Previous to this, Pharaoh was trying to negotiate the terms of whether or not they could go. Uh, we looked at this several times. You know, sometimes he'd say, all right, the men can go, but the women and children stay. All right, y'all go, but leave your flocks and herds here. Uh, y'all can go, but don't go very far. Come on back. Uh, finally, Pharaoh's will has been broken. The people's will has been broken. And they're saying, get out of here as fast as you can. We never want to see you again. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Uh, Like I talked about last week, I don't think I'll reiterate it now, but uh, the entire idea that the Jews have used unleavened bread goes back to this idea. They left in such haste that their bread didn't have time to rise. If you understand how bread works, they put leaven or yeast into it that causes it to rise, makes it all fluffy. You know, it's the difference between, say, saltine crackers and Wonder Bread. You know, saltine crackers, they're, they're almost like bark or, you know, little pieces of wood. Uh, Wonder Bread is, you know, it's almost like a big marshmallow or something like that. What's the difference? It's that the leaven or the yeast has had time to expand and cause the dough to rise. Uh, The Jews had to leave in such haste that they didn't have time to let the dough to rise. And that's 
remembered every single time they used matzah or unleavened bread. And even in the Lord's Supper today, it's uh, sort of alluded to. Uh, In the New Testament, leaven is often a symbol of sin. And you'll remember Paul makes this point a couple of times, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And part of the reason why I think we should use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper is uh, connected here. Uh, You know, it connects to the sinlessness of Jesus. It connects to the Passover and the way in which the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover. I don't think I've mentioned this before, but we here used to use uh, ordinary bread for the Lord's Supper, like little cubes of Wonder Bread. Um, and a teenager came to me uh, and asked me, uh, "Isn't there significance in the lack of leaven in the bread? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't that if the bread represents Jesus, and if leaven often represents sin, and if they certainly used unleavened bread in the Passover, why then are we using these little uh, cubes of uh, Wonder Bread?" And I said to this this teenage girl, "I'm like, you know, that's a good point." And we actually made the decision at that point to, uh, from that point forward, use unleavened bread because it's more consistent with the uh, sort of theology of what all is going on in Scripture. There, there is significance to the details of why uh, Jesus and why God does what he does. You know, there's a reason why we use uh, the fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper and not, say, uh, Diet Coke or something like that. It's, there's a reason why we use unleavened bread and not, say, uh, Oreos or something like that. Uh, again, God in his wisdom has designed these things, and, and, and we should not be wiser than God and think that we can improve on God's ways. Uh, so I would encourage you to keep things as close to Scripture as possible, because even in the details, God has has a reason for them. Anyway, coming back to verse 35, the people of Israel had done also, pardon me, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, in some ways, this is such a funny little detail. I mean, why even include this? A few reasons. First, it illustrates how disgusted the Egyptians were with the Hebrews. Get out of here. And if you want our gold and our silver, take that too. Just get out of here immediately. Um, so, I mean, I can't imagine what this would have been like, uh, asking for people, hey, can I have your gold? Can I have your silver? And they're like, sure, here, take it. Uh, but that's what was going on. And again, it tells you how uh, how much they wanted to get the Egyptians, or the Israelites away from them. But additionally, and more importantly, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, God promised the people of Israel that when they left, they would come out with great possessions. They'd come out with gold and silver and so forth. And we think that this gold and silver uh, could have, and more than could have, very likely uh, became the basis for two events in the future. Can you think of it? Can you think of any events uh, on the horizon where Israel would have used uh, significant amounts of gold and silver? The one, sadly, is the golden calf. Uh, I don't know if we'll get to that in these studies, but eventually they get to the uh, Mount Sinai, and Moses is delayed. He goes up on the mountain. He's there longer than the people expect. And they say, Aaron, make us a golden cow so that we can worship it. Uh, You'll remember that one of the plagues was the plague on the livestock, the killing of the cows. And uh, apparently, though the Israelites had left Egypt, Egypt had not left their hearts. And they still thought that by worshiping the cow god, they they could uh, somehow prosper. That's why they take their gold and they make it into this uh, golden cow. The other event where this gold and silver probably became significant was the creation of the tabernacle, uh, which again, I don't think we'll get to in this particular section of these studies, maybe eventually. My plan right now is to quit Exodus uh, when we get to the Ten Commandments, uh, in part because I'm thinking about doing a series on the Ten Commandments uh, during uh, my Sunday sermons, go to a different book, but then if the Lord wills, come back to Exodus uh, at some point in the future and keep working on uh, working forward. Uh, the tabernacle is a 
fascinating study on its own. You know, again, so many pictures and types of Jesus. Uh, you know, again, you want to be careful there because not every little tiny thing is a picture of Jesus. But as a whole, certainly the temple sacrificial system and a lot of the details are picturing Jesus. So maybe in the future we'll uh, get to that. But those are the significant reasons why they're leaving with this gold and silver. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, beside women and children. Now, I don't know how many people you imagine leaving Egypt in the Exodus, but it was a massive, massive number. If there are 600,000 men, I mean, that's enormous. Uh, You know, I live here in Muncie, and the population of Muncie, if you don't include the college, is something like 60,000. So 10 times that, only in males, and then how many women and children might that be? You know, assuming that roughly each of these men has a wife, and then maybe some of these, you know, assume, presumably some of these families have kids. I mean, we're quickly talking about, what, two, three million people? An enormous number of people leaving Egypt. And that there tells you why Pharaoh so uh, assiduously clung to the Egypt, or clung to the Israelites. I mean, we are talking about literally billions of dollars worth of free labor. And that's why he doesn't want to let him go. I mean, it's not like he's just letting go something that costs like five bucks, ten bucks. We're talking about, you know, something that would be equivalent to trillions of dollars in our economy. So again, we can understand why he's slow to let them go. And yet at the same time, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And because he loved his money and his economy so much, he hardened his heart to the point that Egypt was utterly destroyed. Just, by the way, if you want to explore sort of Egyptian history and how this correlates with Egyptian history, uh, the series of videos I'd encourage you to watch is called Patterns of Evidence by Tim Mahoney. Really, really fascinating stuff. And and they they do make a very persuasive case that there's a way to align uh, what we know from Egyptian history with what the Bible teaches. And one of the things that you'll discover is that right around this time, Egypt experienced a total, absolute like bankruptcy, bottom fell out of the economy. And, you know, without the book of Exodus, you wonder what in the world would have caused that. Uh, well, you know, now that we have the Bible, we, we know what caused that. You know, if you lost two, three million slaves, free labor, uh, your entire nation would collapse. And that is exactly what happened. Anyway, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, it's that phrase, a mixed multitude, I'd like you to notice. Uh, We believe that when the people of Israel left Egypt, it wasn't just the Hebrews that left, uh, but other groups went with them. Now, to explain a little bit of the background here, as I've mentioned before, at this particular time in history, Egypt was the great superpower on the planet. And part of, part of what that meant is that they enslaved multiple people groups. They didn't merely enslave the Jews. They had enslaved other you know, tribes from down in Africa and maybe some other Asian tribes. Uh, there, there were a variety of different tribes that they had enslaved. But some of these individuals from these other tribes, evidently, uh, they either came to saving faith in Jehovah or they just thought, hey, this is a good opportunity to get out of here. Uh, but regardless, they went with the Jews off into wilderness wanderings. And this is probably why in the later Pentateuch, you've got all these laws about how you should treat foreigners and aliens and sojourners. Uh, Probably a lot of those are the residual from these folks that left Egypt with the Israelites. What that points us to is the way in which in the church age, Jesus is the savior of the world, which means he's come to save people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Uh, We're going to be talking about this actually in Wednesday Night Bible Study tonight. So, uh, you know, if you come to Wednesday Night Bible Study, it might be a good opportunity to explore these themes further. But for 
what, over a thousand years, the Lord focused almost exclusively on the Hebrews. Uh, Of course, he made all the peoples on the earth. Of course, he uh, blessed all the peoples on the earth with things like rain and sunshine and common grace. But by and large, his saving knowledge, his saving plan of redemption was almost exclusively limited to the Hebrews. And yet, there are hints all along the way that God's got a bigger vision in in the Hebrews, uh, you know, you've got, you go back to the book, you know, go back to Genesis, you know, answers in Genesis, and God has created all the different families on the earth. You've got when he chooses Abraham, he says, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then here again, you've got a mixed multitude, not just Hebrews benefiting from the work of redemption that God has accomplished through Moses. And when you connect that to the New Testament, it makes sense that now in the New Testament, Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. It's always been God's vision uh, to disciple, to, to reach all the families on the earth with the gospel. And now we, his church, have the privilege of taking the gospel to all the families on the earth. Anyway, verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now verse 40, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, 430 years seems like a long time. You know, what's today? Today's 2023. If you go back 430 years, we're talking like, what, uh, 1600s? I mean, that's a long time. Earlier than that, late 1500s. So imagine how much time has passed, you know, how how much culture has changed, science has changed, medicine has changed between, uh, let's say, 1580 and today. Huge changes. And yet, God kept his promises. Uh, Actually, if you go back to the book of Genesis, God promised Uh, Abraham, that part of what I'm going to do, your people are going to go down to Egypt, they're going to multiply there, they're going to be enslaved there for 400 years, but then I'm going to redeem them out and bring them into the promised land, or at least toward the promised land. I think you know why they didn't make it there in the first generation. But regardless, God is keeping his promises, even though sometimes it takes a whole lot longer than we would wish. Uh, You know, we often want God to be on our timetable. Uh, Lord, please answer my prayers right now. Lord, please uh, save my kids right now. Give me a healthy marriage right now. Uh, cause our church to flourish right now. And so much of the difficulty of the Christian life is waiting patiently, uh, and yet we've got to remind ourselves that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. God's not on our timetable. And if he takes 430 years, if he takes 2,000 years to fulfill his promises, that's totally okay. And who are we to answer back to God? Uh, In a way, it's easy to wait on God. It's not easy to wait patiently on God. Uh, To wait, okay, Lord, you know what's wise. You know what's best here. Yes, I'm praying for this healing or this job or whatever, but you are wiser than I, and I know that you will bring to pass your purposes at the uh, exact right time. Uh, It's a difficult thing to do, and I confess that there are many times that I have a difficult time uh, surrendering to that. So let's pray for grace that we would trust in God's timetable. Because again, more often than not, it takes a lot longer than we would prefer. But God is God and we are not. And part of Christian maturity is surrendering to that. I mean, even think of the promises uh, about Jesus' first coming. The original promise of Jesus' first coming, Genesis 3.15, we think was made roughly 4,000 B.C. Was God unfaithful that he took 4,000 years to fulfill that promise? Not at all. He was doing his perfect plan perfectly. And again, uh, because we're tempted to impatience, that doesn't say anything bad about God. It says everything bad about ourselves. So again, let's pray for one another to this end. Verse 42, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by the people of Israel throughout their generations. Uh, This is just another hint of the way in which the Passover was designed to be something celebrated yearly by the people of Israel. And again, like I've mentioned, if you've got serious Jewish friends, they continue to observe the Passover to this day. It's an every year festival. And one of the things they try to do is to watch. And they've even got sort of little things that they've added over the years. Uh, They watch to see if Elijah shows up. And I think, if I remember correctly, one of the kids goes to the door to see if Elijah's there. Uh, You know, some stuff that doesn't necessarily come from Scripture, but it is connected to this watchfulness that characterized the first Passover and continues to characterize the Passover moving forward. Let's see if we can finish out chapter 12 today. Verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. The reason why they've got to include that is why. It's because they went out with that mixed multitude and there were some foreigners with them. And uh, of course, if, you know, the foreigners are kind of like blended in with the community, they're going to want some. They're, you know, I, I want some lamb. I want some unleavened bread. Uh, but very clearly and emphatically, you're going to see the way in which, no, this is something limited to those who are clearly my people. This is not for everybody on the planet. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be a native, he shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. Pause there. A couple of things to notice. First, clearly there was the ability for foreigners to kind of convert to Judaism. Uh, Judaism isn't the right term at this particular point in history. Uh, to the true worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they were to be circumcised and have all the males in their household be circumcised. So even in the Old Testament, uh, again, I keep wanting to call it Judaism because I can't think of a better term, but even in the Old Testament, Judaism was a, I guess, evangelistic religion that accepted converts. Sometimes we get this idea that in the Old Testament there was no interest in evangelism, no interest in people being converted. Uh, That's totally untrue. You've got in the Old Testament different categories of people. You've got the Hebrews, you've got the resident aliens, the sojourners, who are kind of like hanging out with the Hebrews, but they've not yet been converted. But then you've got these other people that are among the aliens and sojourners who desire to convert. They're willing to be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law and whatnot. All of that's going on in the Old Testament. And the reason why that's important to keep in mind is because there are laws that apply to these different groups. Uh, For instance, the Sabbath law was applicable to everybody, even the resident aliens. You know, even, And from here you could get into sort of debates about the Sabbath. Is it applicable today and whatnot? Should governments grant a Sabbath day to their workers and whatnot? Uh, for the sake of time we won't explore that. But the Sabbath was one of those commands that everybody, whether they were Hebrew or not, or circumcised or not, everybody got a day off once a week. But other ceremonies, other privileges were only to those who had sort of surrendered to the restrictions of the Mosaic law, been circumcised and kind of embraced uh, obedience to Torah, whatnot. And clearly here, God's making this point emphatically. This is for the Hebrews and for those who are of that mixed multitude who are willing to go through sort of the conversion process. Now here's something I want you to think through. Can you think of any ways whereby this might apply to us today? Uh, If the Lord's Supper is in a way comparable to the Passover, 
Are there ways in which this applies to us today? I certainly think there are. Uh, realize the Lord's Supper, now we're talking about something different, the Lord's Supper is not the Passover, but they're definitely related. The Passover sort of matures and evolves into the Lord's Supper. But like the way in which the Passover was not available to everybody, but to only those who had sort of, in a way, taken up their cross to follow Jesus, so also the Lord's Supper is not for everybody. Uh, It is only for those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus and who are striving to follow him in discipleship. Um, We announce this every Sunday. We, We here at Trinity do the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month. And we invite everybody who's put their faith in Jesus uh, and who's striving to walk obediently to partake. Uh, Like I say, you don't need to be a member of this church or whatnot. But the clear implication is that if you're uh, not a Christian, you know, know, you've not yet put your hope in the Lord Jesus, or you're living in some manifest sin, you're not welcome. I know that it's sort of like you kind of got to read through the lines to figure that out, but I think it's clear enough for people to figure that out. Um, And you do see that sort of hinted at here. God's got his ceremonies, his customs that really are appropriate only for those who have gone through the prerequisites. Um, And for the Passover, you've got to actually go through the conversion process. Here's something else to think about. Should somebody partake of the Lord's Supper before they're baptized? What do you think? Uh, I personally don't think so. I think uh, really in a perfect world, baptism, water baptism, like where you're dunked, you know, in, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that really in a way ought to be sort of the first public act of obedience that you do. Uh, let's say somebody comes to faith in Jesus. Uh, might there be some acts of obedience they do before they take the Lord's Supper? Of course. They might start talking more kindly to their spouse. They might start, uh, you know, maybe uh, working a little harder at their job and whatnot. But ideally, the first opportunity they have, they should make their faith public through water baptism. Now, does water baptism save? Not at all. Uh, But those who are saved ought to proclaim this, ought to tell this to the world through the act of water baptism. Similarly, you know, if if the conversion process to Judaism is circumcision, that's kind of the boundary marker identifying the people of God, and if the boundary marker in the New Covenant age is water baptism, and if you couldn't partake of the Passover without circumcision, I don't think you should be taking the Lord's Supper until you've been properly baptized. Now I realize that raises a whole load of questions, but think through these things, and with all things, make the Word of God your authority, not just what feels right to you, or what uh, you've maybe done for many, many years. I know that there are probably people who are watching this who've never been baptized for one reason or another. And maybe you've been partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'd encourage you to not do that. I'd encourage you instead to seek water baptism. And if you happen to come here to Trinity, uh, we would be delighted to facilitate that. So contact me, contact our church. We can begin a conversation along those lines. Um, But just think through this. Uh, What would happen to the person who tried to partake of the Passover if they hadn't been circumcised or gone through the whole pro, you know, process of identifying as a Hebrew. I don't think it would be good. And honest, honestly, in the Old Testament, they, they might actually execute you. Now, I'm not at all saying that we should execute people that take the Lord's Supper today. You know, I think that you know, with the separation of church and state what, and whatnot, the church does not have the sword and, and all of that. And we can, we can talk about that more if you want to. But what I am trying to illustrate is the severity of sort of going around the back door and, and doing things your own way. Uh, God clearly wants you to go through the proper conversion and identification process before you eat of the community covenant meal. Uh, again, I realize this has probably raised a lot of questions and maybe maybe even bothered some people, um, but search the scriptures and see if these things are so. And as those who follow Jesus, we want to submit to Jesus' word even when it bothers us or makes us feel uncomfortable. Uh, so you're wise people. You know how to apply what I'm talking about. Let's finish up chapter 12 and we'll be done. Verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, 
And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So this then is sort of like the conclusion of part one of the book of Exodus. Obviously, there's a lot to go in Exodus. I think, if I remember correctly, Exodus is like, what is it, 28 chapters or something? That's more than that. It's a whole bunch of chapters. Um, but this is sort of the conclusion of like part one. Uh, there's a lot yet to come. There's you know the whole Red Sea thing. There's uh, you know the, the laws about the tabernacle. There's a whole bunch of other laws. Uh, but here we are, finally, the, the end of the big block. Israel is finally out of Egypt. Now, how could we pray this passage back to God? I think I brought up a lot of things today that we could pray. Uh, let's pray for a greater missionary burden uh, that just like God saved a mixed multitude. Today, he's building a church from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And if we're not careful, we can get so content just serving our own people, our own group, our own preferences. So Lord, give me a deeper missionary burden uh, that I might pray and give and send and go to see your name proclaimed among all nations. Lord, give us a greater missionary burden. Um, uh, let's think through the way in which um, God is faithful in keeping his promises even when it's over hundreds of years of time Uh, Lord please give me grace to embrace that even when uh, in my flesh I wish things were going a little bit faster and then let's pray for these uh, parallels between baptism, circumcision, Lord's Supper uh, Passover, these sorts of things I I realize that some of this is difficult teaching but let's pray that God would give us A. illumination by his spirit to see if these things are so and B. uh, if these things are so, grace to repent and to surrender to every word of Scripture. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for the privilege and the joy of studying your word. We do give you glory for the way that you kept your promises to Israel and the way that you led them out of Egypt, for the way that even you kept your promises in letting them go with uh, a mixed multitude and with much gold and silver. Lord, please help us to trust in you, to wait patiently on you, especially when we want things to go faster and we want everything now. Give us grace to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, we do pray for illumination as we think through matters pertaining to baptism, Lord's Supper, all of that. Uh, Lord, some of this might be different from common custom, but again, we want to be renewed by Scripture and to do things your way. So please, illuminate us by your Spirit and give us grace to repent and believe your Word. Lord, thank you for the joy that it is to study and to discuss your Word together. As always, please help us to be doers of your Word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.